Well, our readings this morning invite us to ask a question. Um, uh, and, and our, you know, our worship song, you know, what child is this? What the heck is going on here? What is the big meaning of this baby being born in Bethlehem? It further, when I think of our own spiritual formation, I think invites us to ask this question. Who is it that you follow? Because here's the, here's the deal, my friends. Everybody is learning to do life from someone. There is not one of us who are not learning to do life from somebody. Maybe business guys are thinking, I'm learning to do life from Peter Senge. Uh, I don't know, some people are learning to do life from Oprah. Um, you know, if you're a young athlete, you might be learning to do life from Derek Jeter. I mean, everybody's learning to do life from somebody. There's no such thing of people just drifting through life. It doesn't happen. Everybody has role models. Thus, I think it invites a really particular poignant question. And that is, what if we were to change our, our big evangelistic hook, our big evangelistic sort of final question from, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? Right? Isn't that the big sort of final when you get down to it and you're just about to do the invitation and you've preached the gospel? Then the big question always is, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? Okay, I mean, I'm all right with that. But I think I have a more important, poignant question. What if you knew you are going to live tomorrow? And next week, and next month, and next year? What if you were going to live decades? What if you are a never-ceasing spiritual being? That you're not your body. Like if I cut you open, would I find you somewhere in there? Think about it. Where would you be? Are you somewhere between your liver and your whatever? I mean, come on, where are you? Oh, what, oh some, of, some of you are thinking, no, but what if you opened my head and looked into my brain? You're not your brain. Your brain is just a sophisticated bit of matter. You are a never-ceasing being. You need to memorize this. I am a never-ceasing being with a great future in God's cosmos. That's who you are. So now the question is, who are you following? Who, who sort of is your master? Who's your leader? Because that's what's happening here in these readings. I was thinking as we were singing the songs this morning, you know, O come, O come, Emmanuel, you're ransoming Israel. We have such a disconnect for most of us sort of, you know, modern evangelicals. We see these big disconnection between whatever was going on in Israel. I mean, can we just get real that most of us don't really understand those old Christmas hymns? Like, yeah, yeah, okay, uh, I like the part about Christ the King, but I don't really get what's happening in Israel. I can guarantee you Malachi got what was happening in Israel. And I can guarantee you that the Apostle Paul knew what was happening, and he, as he wrote letters like Philippians and Galatians and Ephesians, and that was Paul doing theology on the run, thinking, what the heck is God up to in Israel? And now the Gentiles are in. Everybody was asking this question, what child is this? What is going on? What's the big import? Because they all really got it. They all knew that, as um, Malachi said, that there was something going on here that was going to teach us to kind of reorder our whole lives around something that God was doing here in this particular point in time. 
So, so the question, what child is this, invites us to kind of think about our thinking, which I think I've said to you before, that's the basic idea of repentance in the New Testament. Repentance in the New Testament isn't, you know, coming to an altar and kneeling and maybe crying. I mean, it can involve that. I'm not putting that down, but that's not what the word means. The, the Greek word in the New Testament for repentance is metanoia. Noia means thinking. Meta is the prefix means again. So to repent means to think again. It means to reconsider your thinking. And that's what, of course, they had to do. That's what, gave question, that's what gave rise to things like, who is this? What child is this? What is going on? You have to picture nations and generations rethinking their thinking. As Jesus was literally calling into question everything they thought was true about life. Namely, that you should hate the Gentiles and have nothing to do with them. Jesus comes along and embraces them. Jewish thought at the time said you should never have anything to do with somebody who's had five husbands. And the disciples come back and find him at a well talking to this woman. He was challenging them on every level of what it meant to be human, of what it might mean to work for Rip Curl or, you know, AT&T. He was challenging them about fundamentally just what it meant to be human. And that's why we need something more than just some bloodshed for us. Yeah, bloodshed for us, of course, it cleanses our sins. Of course, it does make possible an eternal kind of life and the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. Of course, it does all of that. But we need something for a life. See, because I know in your imaginations, blood goes on my sin, Right? But you're not just your sin. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? For life, you need a leader. For life, you need to decide who am I going to follow. And and this is why Malachi says, okay, look, this, this person that Israel, you've been hoping for, this person is coming. And he's really going to be a leader. But you see, lots of, what, uh, lots of what Israel's leader had been experiencing was that leadership for them was a lot like running a cemetery, right? You got a lot of people under you, but no one's listening. <laughs> That's kind of what it was like for Israel's leaders. It was just anarchy. And you had, you know, the quietists and the pietists saying, no, live this way. The Herodians were saying, no, here's what it means to be Jewish. You know, the, the zealots were saying, no, here's what it means to be Jewish. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I am the hope of all the years. This is presence of God. This is the presence of God. This is the advent that you've all been looking forward to. This is the advent that we now celebrate and look forward to an advent to come in which time what Jesus started on earth will be made perfect in the age to come. And so Malachi tells us, here's what this guy's going to be like. He's going to be the messenger of the covenant. Now, this is hugely important because this is one of the places where our sort of reductionistic, oversimplified evangelical theology has done us wrong. There's a lot more going on in Christianity than merely going to heaven when you die. This is, it includes going to heaven when you die, but it cannot be reduced to it. This is the messenger of the covenant. Well, as soon as you use the word covenant, which most of us know very little about, quote, covenantal theology, as soon as you use the word covenant, two things go on. One, you know that whatever's happening here, it's happening within something God is doing. Because covenant means initiation or intention of God 
married to then God's intention for humans, his sort of requirements, you might say, but I don't want you to get legalistic about this. I want you to think more relationally. Like Adam and Eve, I want you to be with me, right? Very relational, very invitational. And I want you to rule with me and reign with me and work this new creation I've created. Why does God choose Abram and make him Abraham and make him the father of this great nation? Because Genesis 12, 3, because you will bless the rest of the world. Things go wrong. Israel's in exile. They're captive. And even at the time of Jesus, though they're not physically in Babylon, though they're not physically captive, they are still spiritually in exile, hugely separated from their God. And everybody knew it. Sort of spiritual anarchy reigned. And, and no one knew exactly what to do. And the prophet said, God is going to send you the messenger of the covenant. And he'll restore not only this time to Israel, but to the whole world, all of humanity, what it means to be fundamentally human. See, Jesus was not first answering the question, how is it that people go to heaven when they die? He was first answering the question, what does it, be, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Remember, I've said before, heaven is not the goal. Heaven is the destination. We are going there, and we are going there because of the matchless merit of Jesus Christ. But that's not the goal. The goal is spiritual transformation into Christ's likeness. Why? Because Christ is the messenger of the covenant. He, he is the visible image of what God is doing in humanity. So when Malachi says that he's going to be like a white-hot fire from a, a smelter's furnace... The, uh, I'm reading here from the message, the strongest lie of the soap in the, in the laundry, taking his place as a refiner of silver, scrubbing the Levite priests clean. Did you hear that? The priests. What was unclean about the priests? I mean, I doubt that they were all like sort of our stereotype, you know, these days of, you know, priests molesting or stealing money or something. I doubt that that was actually what was going on. The uncleanness here has to do with not in alignment with God's covenant. This is the language of holiness, of set-apartness, of alignment. But again, it's very, I want you to really get this. It's not the kind of thing, though, it's not the kind of holiness that where you're trying to think, well, what should we think about what Adam Lambert did? Or should we let our children read books that have to do with vampires? Or what about you know, the way NFL cheerleaders dress or, you know, how do we, you know, the, the big news this week has been, how do, you, how do you think about what Tiger Woods apparently has been up to? Well, so in the context of golf, who cares? If he can hit the ball straighter than anybody else and make it go as high as he wants in the distance, who cares? But then somebody might say, oh, but wait a minute, he's been a pitchman for companies. Now it matters. Somebody else might say, no, 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 none of that matters. He's a husband. Someone else might say, no, 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 what really matters is that he's a father. But all of those things emerge within a bigger context. You want to figure out NFL cheerleader attire, you want to figure out any of that stuff, you figure it out within the context of what does it mean to be human. And what it means to be human is to serve other ladies, not to use them. What it means to be human is to not so major on my uh, rights, you know, human rights. Human rights just, 
are everywhere today. It's all anybody ever talks about. I literally never hear anyone talk about human responsibilities. What might you do with your sexuality if your first thought getting up in the day is what is my responsibility to my wife? No, I'm not picking on tiger. It's just an easy illustration. I got no beef with tiger. Bless his heart. I got no beef. But it's just an easy illustration of we're just so full of this other story that's running. And Advent invites us to wonder, okay, we got all these other stories running about human sexuality and human economies and blah, blah, blah. But behind that story is running this other really big story of which Jesus' presence, his advent into human society was meant to change everything, including where you spent your eternity, but not reduced to that. I'm probably gonna say that to you a thousand times. You better get used to it. Because I know the tapes that run in most Christians' minds. And we need some sort of story about that can organize and, and sort of fundamentally rearrange our life to bring it into alignment. Remember I've said to you before that Jesus several times in the Gospel of John says something like, see all these things I'm doing and all these things I'm saying? They're meant to help you align your life with the messenger of the covenant and that covenant. This is what it's all about. And of course, Paul helps to see this kind of alignment in the reading in Philippians, where he says to all the believers in Jesus, look in your bulletin, is that what it says? I'm sort of expert on this because I wrote a book called Christianity Beyond Belief. But you'll notice it doesn't say to all the believers. What's it say? To all the followers, right? To everybody who's following Jesus. Why? Because he's the messenger of the covenant. That's the meaning of his life. That's why he came. So this is to everybody who's chosen to follow Jesus, chosen to learn to do life from him. And so Paul says precisely to those people, here's my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more. Why? Because love is the primary point of alignment. Love is core to God. God himself, if you had to define him, is completely competent love. And love then was to be the core of humankind. What's the basic fruit of the Spirit, according to Paul in Galatians? Love. When Paul gets sort of stuck in 1 Corinthians talking about all the stuff happening in the church, both good and bad in Corinth, what's he finally say? Look, you know, now that I think about it, when you all get down to this, 1 Corinthians 13, this is all about love. But again, in our culture, we've almost completely mistook in love for desire. Love is not desire. Love is fundamentally self-giving. You know, our God who is completely competent love expressed that in his self-giving of creation. And then from creation all the way to the renewed heaven and the renewed earth, there would be continually God self-giving will bring earth and all of what it was supposed to be to what it was supposed to be. See, desire is, I see a piece of chocolate cake, and I say, and this is true of me, I love German chocolate cake. That's actually true. And love would be like all caps. <laughs> and when my birthday comes on April 21st, if you put a little extra topping on the, on the top and in the middle, because I think I love the coconut more than anything, you know what I mean? But when I say I love chocolate cake, I don't mean I want to do good to it. I mean I want to devour it. And can I just say that things go wrong in human sexuality when you see something and you desire it rather than want to serve it? 
I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure this stuff out. This is very simple stuff. Things go wrong in families when, when the, the family sits in your imagination as something that you use or something that you require something from. But families go great when you've got a couple or a family of people who are genuinely loving, which means I seek your good above my own even. Now all of a sudden humanity starts working and we don't have to ask. Hey, little Mexican boy who just got hit by a car and you're laying on the corner of Bristol and Baker bleeding. We don't have to ask, are you legal or not? It would never cross our minds, are you legal? Because if you're illegal, lay there and bleed to death. No, because my whole imagination is I exist to be Christ's person, to come upon those scenes and to love, which means to will the good of another. Not to desire or to use in some, you know, current political game or something. And this is what Paul is teaching us, that what you really need to do is learn to discern what's best, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Again, this is all the stuff about covenant and alignment. But then we get to the reading. I'm so glad Ellis had to read today, right? Aren't you glad you didn't have to read the gospel today, all those funky words, you know? But you know what? All those funky words are really important. And I'm not just like trying to dig something out here. This is actually, they're, they're fundamental because here's what they teach us. We are not Zoroastrianism people. We are not Buddhists for whom everything's mystical and out there. Christianity is concrete and particular. And names and dates and cities and people make our Christ concrete. Christianity is not primarily a mystical religion. Are there mystical things about a religion? Yes. Can I give you an adequate explanation of what's going to happen in five minutes around Eucharist? No, I can't. I know all the theories, but all I know is that something mysterious happens. I mean, you just heard Chris and Luana saying, like, I don't even get all this. I don't know why we do purple at Advent. I just know that when I come into this room, something good happens for my soul. Of course, there is some mystery. But primarily, Christianity is concrete. And if you don't see that, that's why that 14-year-old Mexican kid laying on the street isn't concrete to you. You, you can't pick and choose. You're, you're either going to live in a kind of concrete, real Christianity in which you're aligning yourself to this messenger of the covenant or we're going to live in a kind of mystical woo-woo thing that never gets itself on the ground, either in our hearts or our families or our society. Well, what John is talking about here, you know, this preparing way for the presence of Advent, when John, you know, hears this sort of final messenger, this final prophet before the coming of Jesus, he tells a story. And the story isn't about a religion Again, borrowing from the message, I, I love this. It, Peterson has John saying, this is a baptism of life change. It's not a baptism into a political entity called Israel. It's not a baptism merely into a historical religion. Though you could say it included all those things for all those Jews who are flocking out of villages everywhere to go down to the Jordan to be baptized. But John wanted them to know, a little water on your skin is not gonna do a thing. 
He wanted them to know that what you're doing when you come and you hear this last messenger of the covenant king who's going to come, you need to know that as you immerse yourself in the water, what you're really doing is you're immersing yourself again into God's purposes for humanity. This is a message of life change. It includes your sins being forgiven. Of course it does. Think about it. Here's God. He created humankind. There's this big gulf of our sin. But God merely closing the gulf is not what he's after. What he's after is then regeneration, a new life. He's after reconciliation, a, a, a new relationship in which we're living our lives consciously in alignment with this God who is completely competent love. Because the story that we read here in this passage is not the slightest bit mystical. Oppression and misery marked the moment that we read about and sang about this morning. Oppression and misery. The Jews were fighting amongst themselves. The Romans distrusted them. They were sometimes fighting with Rome. And it was literally oppression and misery. Rome ruled by fear. They were corrupt. They were cruel. No one trusted the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Occasionally, there was a revolt that had to be put down. These ancient Jews were looking for a new word from God. They were looking for sort of an update on the covenant and relationship. They knew the prophecies about renewal. They knew that Israel was going to come out of exile. So here they were. They're no longer physically in Babylon. They're back in the land, but we're still in oppression. We still hate each other, and we hate the Samaritans, and we hate the Romans, and they all hate each other and hate us, and we're living in this horrible time in which no one loves, everybody desires. I want your country, it's got oil. I want your country, it's got water. Not a lot different than what we see happening in Africa and Latin America, and increasingly even in North America, where everybody just sort of wants what they can get out of something. But John says, no, what's happening here is not just oppression. But in the same way that Jesus arose in cities and times and places that were concrete, John the Baptist now says, we've got to move from this sort of historic narrative of exile and freedom to knowing that the story that underlies that is your personal moral life. That was John's thing. John's thing was, look, humanity hasn't ended up in the place it's ended up in by accident. It's ended up in this place primarily by a lack of being God's people, God being completely competent love. You're failing to participate in the covenant, and now you're not sort of competent, loving people. You're incompetent with reference to your calling from God, and you're full of desire just to use people and systems And John the Baptist came and said, Jesus is not just going to fix the historic Israel thing. He's going to fix your thing and your thing and your thing. And he will take you out of the exile of a fundamentally selfish life and renew you in the covenant of God, fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit, forgive your sins so that you can be his people on earth today in the very particular and concrete realities of your present life. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.